Welcome back to the podcast. In our last episode, we heard the tale of the first and second voyages of Jacques Cartier, or Jacques Cartier, for you Anglophones out there. And at the end of his second voyage, after having spent all winter frozen in the St. Lawrence, outside of the great St. Lawrence Iroquois village of Stadacona, he kidnaps their chief, a man by the name of Donacona, who he previously took the sons of to become translators after his first voyage. Now, just to review, why did he kidnap this man? Well, for one, Jacques Cartier was tasked with finding a westward passage to Asia, and he failed miserably at that. As consequence, he needs to bring back something, some potential industry to be opened up, something that has some promise of making somebody money in the future. Donacona, who Jacques Cartier called the Lord of all of Canada, some grand title when in fact he was probably just the chief of that village and the surrounding area, had been telling Jacques tales about a mystical kingdom to the west where gold came from. Now, originally, at the beginning of these voyages, uh, the general westward direction was where copper came from. But slowly, those tales became more and more elaborate. For Cartier, the kidnapping of Donacona would not only serve to bring back a lord of that land to the French king, but also uh, he would serve as witness to potential riches far to the west. Potentially a new Aztec empire or Incan empire size uh, gold mine of a civilization that they could plunder. Now let's look at this from Donacona's perspective. He was taken with nine or ten of his people. They're on these ships on the Atlantic. There's no land to be seen. Not the typical landscape for St. Lawrence Iroquois. They know they're at the mercy of these strange Frenchmen. And they also know that the more they talk about this mystical kingdom of Saguenay, the happier these French guys get, the, the better they're treated. And so the story starts to grow and become more elaborate and more lavish and more wild. And when Cartier makes it back to France, he gets an audience with the king and he presents Donacona, the great lord of Canada, to the king of France. And by this time, the various versions of the story that Donacona just yarned out to the king of France are just just completely wild and we don't exactly know what he told them but there are references to oh the the great kingdom of Saguenay has white people just like you and one-legged animals some sources say Donacona claimed there were humans with wings other authors call these winged humans flying batmen and then there were pygmies and of course gold silver and gems and Donacona, he was a smart man, and he was quite right to make up this tale. As far as he knew, far to the west of him, this place could exist. And he actually received a royal pension for this information. Now imagine Donacona in Paris, completely overwhelmed by the sights and sounds and the sheer number of people. Imagine going into a cathedral after living in an Iroquois village where you put things together by weaving them and intertwining them. You don't have very many metal tools yet. You don't have hammered nails. You don't have glass yet. And seeing him walk into a cathedral, imagine his experience. I myself have been into one cathedral. I'm not a very well-traveled man. And it was amazing. Even with all the CGI, I think this was after Avatar came out. Even after all that, I was blown away. Imagine a man whose life is surrounded by stick and hides, suddenly immersed in carved stone, marble, uh, colored glass, high ceilings and orchestrated music on instruments you never even dreamed of. The experience for the St. Lawrence Iroquois in Paris must have been overwhelming. What was more overwhelming, unfortunately, 
was diseases. Now, we've heard of explorers coming over from the old world to the new world, and they bring smallpox, or they bring some other contagious disease that the old world had been dealing with for thousands of years. Now, that's just one disease in a new world location. Now, let's take some of those new world people and plop them down into a busy, crowded, dirty city like Paris. Now, suddenly, it's not just smallpox. It's just a concoction of everything that would swell in uh, numbers of those infected every year during certain seasons. Uh, the, the New World genome just simply couldn't live in a dirty European city. In fact, many Europeans who lived in city had, had a horribly low life expectancy and often had to be replenished by excess peasant populations in the country. And so, of these 10 or 11 total St. Lawrence Iroquois, who were taken by Cartier, it's believed that only one young girl survived. Despite the good treatment and the pensions, they are out of our story. Donacona dies in France. And one by one, so do all the others. Now Cartier must be thinking to himself, I was only really welcomed into the St. Lawrence country because I came back with these translators who I took on my first voyage. I'm not coming back with anyone this time. What am I going to say when I get there? Where, where did these guys go? How am I going to communicate with these people? To make matters worse, there were no resources for a third expedition. Despite Francis I wanting this to go down and create a potential settlement, a war broke out between France and Spain. That war was fought to a truce. And it would take about five years for Jacques Cartier and his expeditions to pick up any steam. And so he's parked. He's stuck in Saint-Malo, and nothing's happening. Skip forward to October of 1540, and Cartier receives a commission for his third voyage. But hold your horses! That commission was very quickly overturned and replaced with a superior one, not granted to him, but to a nobleman by the name of, and I'm going to mess this up, Jean-Francois de Leroux de Rabeval. From this point on, I'm going to call him Robertval, or Robertval. That's what you're getting. Now, historians are split on this subject. Suddenly, Cartier loses his commission, and it's given to some relation to the king, you know, by so many degrees. So by the one point of view, this was a slight. Cartier did the work, and then the rich nobleman came in, took all the credit for it, and now was going to reap the benefits of the third expedition. Now, that's one interpretation. There's a more nuanced one where uh, what Donacona said and what Cartier did was so impressive to Francis I that it now became of great national interest. Now, at this time, France is divided up into classes. You've probably heard of the first, second, and third estate of the French Revolution, but there were layers in between. It was very stratified. Think of uh, maybe the Hindu caste system, just for uh, uh, the amount of complexity. And so what Francis I has in mind now is not an expedition, it's not a voyage. He wants to settle people. He wants New France on the map to be New France in reality. He wants French people living there. And so now, this isn't something a normal person from St. Malo can lead, right? You're expanding the French world. This has to be led by a nobleman. And so the other point of view is that the king was so impressed that it was now time for the proper power structure of France to take over. And so in fitting style, Roberval was awarded titles that Cartier could never even dream of, could never even take a whiff of. Roberval became, according to Francis, the Lord of Norumbega, Viceroy and Lieutenant General of Canada, Hachalaga, Sagunay, 
Newfoundland, Belle Isle, Carpunt, Labrador, the Great Bay, and Bacalas. And in these positions, he was to settle French people on the land and create hereditary fiefdoms, much like how many of the kingdoms of Europe worked, transplant that system to the New World, a feudal-like system where you have lords who own the land, landlords, and then you have peasants who work the land. On paper, anyway, Roberval could assign any amount or chunk of land anywhere from Newfoundland out to the Great Lakes to anyone he wanted. The plans Francis I had put into place with his funding of Verrazano's voyage all those many years ago was now coming to fruition. They were going to claim the New World, despite what Spain and Portugal had to say. In fact, they protested Francis's moves at this point, and the Vatican actually gave Francis approval of his actions. The Catholic world would be expanded whether or not Spain and Portugal had anything to do with it. And if you listened to the last episode, you would know that the Pope and the King of France were now in-laws, so that helped too. But Spain especially would not let this go, because the northern part of North America, while it might seem odd today, was still in play for the Spanish Empire. They still considered it part of their realm, although the French considered the top half of North America, more or less, to be New France. And then at this time, they believed there was a center sea, much like the Mediterranean, and then below that would be Spanish Florida and Mexico. The Spanish actually had spies in the ports of France, and France did too, so we'll learn about that later. But Spain was watching very closely all of Roberval's and Cartier's preparations, and it was under a watchful eye. And realistically, at any point, the Spanish could have rolled into the St. Lawrence if they decided to put their resources up in that direction. Thankfully for everyone other than the Spanish, there were no large stockpiles of gold to their knowledge. It's from one of these spies that we understand the relationship between these two men, Roberval and Cartier, who is still involved. All right, he's, he won't be the lord of the land, but he's going to lead the expedition because he's been there before and he's building on his work. So a Spanish spy reported in April of 1541 that as far as the navigation and discovery of land is concerned, Roberval and all others will obey the said Jacques Cartier. So it's clear that Cartier would be the Moses of this third expedition. He knows where to go. He has some relation with the natives. He knows what he's doing. He knows how to sail. But in the end, Roberval, once everything is set up, would assume control as viceroy. Many believe that Cartier had a contentious relationship with Roberval, and uh, I, I would say so. Well, first of all, there's the controversy over whether or not Roberval stepped in and stole the commission. And then beyond that, Roberval was a Huguenot, which is a word I don't believe we've used yet in this series. A Huguenot is a French Protestant, and at this time specifically a, a Calvinist, uh, more likely than not, which was a follower of John Calvin. So if you know anything about the Protestant Reformation, first, of course, you have Martin Luther and the Lutherans in the beginning of the Protestant Reformation. And then you have John Calvin, and he creates a schism uh, where a, a whole bunch of Protestant people fall under. Uh, that would be the umbrella term Calvinists or Calvinism. Now, the Puritans were considered Calvinists. The Pilgrims, better known as the Separatists of Leiden back in their day. The uh, Reformed churches were Calvinists, including the Dutch Reformed Church, which we featured in the last season of this show. And now for those Protestants in France, they become known as Huguenots. And we'll get more into that in our next episode, actually, so stick around for that. But they're having difficulty living inside 
of the French kingdom because France is officially Catholic. And again, they're they're in-laws with the papacy. They're deeply connected going back hundreds and hundreds of years, back to the time of Charlemagne. Church and state were one. Um, they, they were inseparable from one another. So how can you be a loyal and true Frenchman to the French crown if you're not also Catholic? And this is a question that's going to cause nine or so civil wars in the upcoming decades from the time period we're talking about. And so while some countries have never even fought nine civil wars, France is going to fight about nine of them just in this century alone. In fact, just in a couple decades. Roberval, although he's a nobleman, is part of this group of people who are trying to find a place in France for them. Can France handle Protestants? And many people in France at this time say, no, they aren't. By being Protestant, you have just left French culture altogether. You must go and leave and become something else. Robert Vol's one of those men trying to find a middle way. That being said, Cartier was a devout Catholic. He shows up in his local St. Malo church records again and again and again. He, there's some speculation he was born Protestant, but he became a fervent Catholic. Now all of a sudden, not only has his power been usurped by this noble who seemingly has never been to the New World, but it's a Protestant nonetheless. And here we go. We, you know, we've been talking to the Pope, right? The, the French Empire's been talking to the Pope, saying, hey, we're doing this to spread Catholicism, and then boom, we put a Protestant in charge? So Cartier, right off the bat, probably wasn't a big fan of Protestants. And on the last note on Robert Vall and the relationship between him and Cartier, Robert Vall was desperate. He was recently returning from exile. He lucked into this position, and he had to make money. He was massively in debt to his noble cousins, and this was his shot out of that debt. And perhaps that made him a little overzealous, a little reckless. Not to mention he was about 10 years younger than Cartier. And so between the religion, the desperation, and the lack of experience, because Robert Vall was a soldier, not a sailor, not a colonizer, Cartier was uh, probably resentful, might have been a little angry, and in some ways, even though Robert Vole was of a higher class, probably looked down on him, or was just annoyed by the fact that he had to answer to him. And so while historians have called this Cartier's third expedition, it really is Robert Vole's expedition. He's ultimately the person in charge of the entire operation. But his inexperience shows right away, because as they're planning, as they're in the planning stages to begin this new colony of New France, Cartier has his contingent ready pretty quickly. I mean, it's been five years. He's ready to go. Where Robert Vol just keeps stalling. Things keep happening. He, it keeps getting delayed. And Robert Vol actually gets permission from the crown to, to seed the colony with convicts. He couldn't source enough volunteers for this future settlement. And so he, his plan was to fill it with criminals. And Roberval actually had prisoners marched in chains through the streets of St. Malo to be loaded onto ships and brought over as the first colonists of New France. This, ex this wasn't exactly the best advertisement for the new colony. And also these criminals didn't exactly have skills needed for a colony, like the ability to farm, knowledge on how to fix things, uh, blacksmithing, uh, carpentry. These, these weren't skills that convicts in urban Paris typically had. They were usually uh, in prison because they were impoverished, because they didn't have economic skills that would uh, keep them on the up and up. Cartier, for his part, as captain general and master pilot 
of the expedition uh, received permission from Robert Vall to just leave ahead of time. Because Robert Vall was seemingly never going to get in these boats and head off on his own, Cartier just said, Hey, how about I just go right now, I'll set things up for you. And he did. He set sail May 23rd, 1541, with two years worth of supplies. So well prepared this time. At this point, I have to give Cartier some credit. He's going back to the St. Lawrence with two years of provisions, meaning that he's fully intending on staying over winter, which is what he did a couple years ago where tons of his men died. He, he lived in a rickety a stockade or in a, in a boat frozen in the St. Lawrence. It was, it was sheer hell, and he's going back into it. This is a brave man. In addition to the provisions, he had five ships and 1,500 men. That's a massive, massive number of people for any of these early colonization efforts. You can fast forward yourself almost 100 years and look at the English colonies uh, that were planted by the Mayflower at Plymouth. Or you can look down at Jamestown. 1,500 men right out of the gate is insane. That's massive. And Cartier, without Roberval, who's going to be in France for a long time after this, has de facto control over the entire expedition, which is probably exactly what he wanted in the first place. It took the five ships three months to cross the Atlantic, which sounds like a long time, and even in the day, was a long time. Sometimes this trip could be done as in as short as three weeks, which, which seems unbelievable to have the wind push you that far in three weeks, but there are reports of it being done in a little over three weeks. It took them three months with 1,500 men. Finally, on August 23rd, Cartier and his huge expedition come upon the village of Stadacona where they had previously taken several captives, including their leader, Donacona, or Donacona, the one who spun the great tales of the kingdom of Sugane, uh, for which they're now looking for. Cartier dreaded this moment because he has to come up with some sort of story as to why none of their people have made the return trip. What he concocts in his mind as the boats come out to greet him, they're all very happy because they think they're going to see their, their relatives who had left five years previously. He says, well, we made them all great lords, and they all married, and none of them wanted to come back because their life in France is so good. Now, here's the key point here that uh, bails out Cartier, 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 whatever you want to say. The new leader of the village, Agona, was the rival of Donacona. So he hears this and he goes, hey, that's great for Donacona and all those people. Of course, Agona wants to believe this story, or at least wants everyone else to believe this story, because he's in power now. And he doesn't want there to be any question about that. So they're welcomed with open arms because once again, uh, Cartier helped put into place the entire power structure that is now ruling the village. And so he received a reception better than anyone would have expected. A stroke of good luck for Cartier. But it's late August. It's far too late in the year now to find a site to settle, start constructing buildings and plant crops. It's not going to happen. Not on the St. Lawrence anyway. And so Cartier, as parting gifts, lavishes the wives of Agona and Agona himself and says a parting goodbye because he's not going to set up a settlement this close to Stadacona. If you remember, on the last expedition five years previously, there was tension between the two groups. And in his account on this third expedition, it's sparse. But for one reason or another, he feels comfortable putting a little distance between him and the Staticonans. And to be honest, the Staticonans probably do just as much or more so than the French. And so the entire expedition travels further upstream to find their final place of settlement. Defense, at least through the winter, seems to be Cartier's primary concern. 
because the site he picks is at the mouth of the Cap Rouge River, where it meets the St. Lawrence, featuring easily defendable cliffs and a hill where he could build a fort to overlook the rest of the settlement. They land, and Cartier names the settlement after the king's son, the future Charles II, and he names it Charlesburg Royal. If you ever look up recreations of Charlesburg Royal, you'll see that for 1,500 people or so, it was a small settlement. It was compact, tight, defensible. And once Cartier and his men got the settlement to be livable, at least through the winter, he sent back his relatives, one of his nephews and his brother-in-law, to France to report to Roberval like, hey, dude, we got everything set up for you. Where are you? And Cartier himself decided to go back upstream to the village of Hachalaga that he visited during his second expedition. Remember, Cartier, in his heart of hearts, is not a settler. He's not a colonizer. He's an explorer. And so while he's setting up this winter habitation, he's really looking for the kingdom of Saguenay. This kingdom rumored to have all sorts of marvels, but above all else, gold. When Cartier returns to Hachalaga, people are surprised to see him. It's been so many years. And they immediately start giving him gifts, including gifts of children, who I know it sounds weird to gift a child to somebody, but this is how intercultural exchange happens. As I mentioned before, children are the the best at learning new languages. And so one people would often gift children to another group of people so that they would learn each other's languages, and then you would have a translator. He goes on to visit another village called Tutanagai, and this might have been a satellite village of Hachalaga, or this might have actually have been Hachalaga itself. Scholars are kind of split on this. So Iroquois, northern Iroquois culture, villages move. As resources get used up, a village might retain a name, but it might relocate 20 or so miles in a different direction. And it kind of will exist within a territory, but the exact nucleus of the village will change over time. The, the fortified, stockaded area, or palisaded area, rather. And so, it'd been five years, so this second village might have actually have been the original Hachalaga, or there could have been reorganization over the five years that it had eclipsed since that time. Cartier is our only source on this, and he's not exactly a reliable source, considering how little he knows about the culture of these people. He asks for guides, and he's given guides. And he asks that they take him in the direction of the kingdom of Sagane. And they take him a long while. They take him all the way to this point that we call today the Lachine Rapids. Cartier saw the, the black rocks and the white water, and he knew that none of his European boats would be able to navigate this safely or reliably anyway. And so he asked the natives, like, what's beyond this point? What's further west? And the natives said, well, there's more, there's more rapids. It's like this, and it just keeps going. And it is at this point that Cartier stops his log. The record of his third expedition, from his own words, ends here. Cartier gives up. He returns back to his settlement. And at least until next year, this will be the end of his search for the great kingdom of Saguenay. And now our story continues from other sources. When Cartier returns back to his settlement, the men there are already concerned about the swelling number of natives in the area that they keep sighting. It's very similar to his last expedition, where he returns from the same direction, Hachalaga, and the Staticonans are just swelling in number, and they don't know why. And as the winter set in, the intentions of these natives became more explicit. Charlesburg Royal was well defended, and any native attack with their current technology would need overwhelming numbers in order to breach the settlement itself, and endanger the population. But from time to time, those in the settlement would need to leave 
and gather wood, or snow to melt down in the winter to have drinking water. Despite the two years' worth of supplies, there were still several things that they would need to leave the settlement in order to obtain, and that's when the natives would pounce. Over the course of this winter, 1541-1542, 35 of Cartier's men are picked off by the natives, killed. And when that long winter was over, from the east, there was no Robberville. He hadn't come. To the west was the Lachine Rapids, and nothing within sight, no kingdom of Siganay. And all around him were potential threats, natives who had already begun the killing. Cartier was out of tricks. He had no more stories to sell to the King of England. There was no sign of this kingdom. The idea of there being a westward passage up the St. Lawrence long since out of hope. Cartier was a desperate man. But in the spring, as the snow melted and the sand came up to view, his men noticed in the sands gold flecks. And crawling through the hills, the men dug out of the mountains crystals that they took for diamonds. But even still, Cartier, he waited. He waited all the way until June of 1542. And then figuring that Robberville got lost at sea. Or never left. He loaded up his ships with gold and with diamonds. And he abandoned the colony. He left. He went east, down the St. Lawrence, and out into the Atlantic. He went to St. John's Harbor in Newfoundland, where there were tons of fisheries and fishermen from different nations, many if not most from France, to get the news of the day and to just plug himself back into the transatlantic world. And wouldn't you know it, there he runs into Robberval's fleet. Up until this point, all the trials and tribulations and disappointments and surprises and challenges, Cartier has been in charge. And now suddenly he's confronted with his superior of a higher station and rank in French society, but 10 years younger, inexperienced, and, worst of all for him, a Protestant, a Huguenot. Robberval chastises him for abandoning the settlement. After all, he was right behind you. He was going to be there. A couple weeks, he'd be right there. Robberval orders him, you're going to turn around with me, and we're going back to the St. Lawrence. But Cartier's ships are full of scared settlers who don't want to go back, and gold and silver, and they're all going to be rich. So in the middle of the night, Cartier and his men slip away with their boats, leaving Robberval to his own devices. Cartier disappears from our story for a while here, because now it's Robberval's tale. Now what has this guy been up to? Turns out he didn't leave France until April of 1542, a full year after Cartier, and then he spent the entire summer privateering for English boats. Now, privateering, if you don't know, that is pirating on the open seas, but in the name of a country. So France would give you a license to privateer English ships. And that's exactly what he did. He was in no hurry to get to this settlement. Again, Robberville was a poor man at this point, of high nobility, but a low in funds. He was looking to make money, and he was desperate. Privateering was far more profitable than the risk of a faraway distant colony. Now, remember, at this time, there aren't faraway distant French settlements anywhere else in the world. So this is a new, untested, uh, venture capitalist type of thing, whereas privateering is a time-honored practice. So while Cartier was building Robberville's settlement for him, fending off natives, Robberville was taking ships, collecting booty, and hanging out in France, 
No wonder Cartier decided to go his separate way. Cartier had a smaller number of ships, a much smaller number of settlers, and certainly some of Cartier's original settlers were roped into going with Roberville. Among his colonists were a number of the noble class, including relatives of his. Uh, a young niece or cousin, perhaps, named Marguerite. The fact that women were sent over, including noble women, means that they, they were meaning to stay. This was not going to be a frontier colony or a merchant station. This was going to be a new population. This was going to be a new France. And on that note, while approaching the St. Lawrence, it was discovered that Marguerite was already starting to try to populate this new France, and that she was having an affair with a crew member, who of course would be of a much lower station, and they were not married. Robert Vall, being a very strict and pure Protestant of the time, uh, took affront to this. A relative acting in such a way would besmirch the family name, as well as going against his religion. And so he decided to abandon her on an island. And this story has been the source of so much fiction, it's hard to determine what the actual truth was here. And so all the following details involving Marguerite's story just take with a large grain of salt. Supposedly, she was to be abandoned with her servant, an older maid that would take care of her, because she was nobility, after all, despite being thrown away on an island in the uh, near the mouth of the St. Lawrence. And her lover apparently jumped overboard and went swimming after her, choosing Marguerite over all of civilization. Her lover did the hunting and the fishing, built a little cabin, and Marguerite, her servant, and her lover lived together as best they could, and Marguerite became pregnant. But then, in quick order, her husband died, her servant died, and then her child died. And what was a small group of castaways was now a single person, isolated, on an island in the middle of nowhere. Marguerite alone, a noblewoman with no skills that she could apply with her hands, had to find a way to survive on this island. Allegedly, she killed polar bears, and then some two and a half years later was rescued by French fishermen, returning home to tell her tale to other members of high society, where her kin, Roberville, was the villain, and everything she loved around her slowly died of sickness. But was Roberville a villain in real life? Well, let's see. Once he arrives at Charlesburg Royal, the abandoned colony, he disassembles parts of it and carries it further uphill. He wants to make it even more defensible. But for one reason or another, Roberville didn't have the preparation and the provisions that Cartier did. And very quickly, the colony began to starve. Food was running out, and winter was setting in. Another cold winter on the St. Lawrence. Roberville, as viceroy, of Canada was the rule and the law of the land as far as the French were concerned. And he rationed the food. And between the cold and the hunger, tempers started to flare. Now remember, most of these colonists that he has now, as one of his relatives would describe them, were habitual criminals. The esteemed historian of New France, W.J. Eccles, said that these settlers were mostly gallows bait. In other words, they were presented with two options. Either go to the gallows and be hung, or go off on this venture called New France. And then, of course, with the cold, the lack of sun, and the lack of food, scurvy set in. It's thought that over the winter, about a third of his colonists died of scurvy. And then, among the other two-thirds, there was fighting and theft. 
Roberval treated these colonists harshly, and if they were guilty of any crimes in his eyes, he kept them in shackles and would have them whipped daily. And if the crime was serious enough, being viceroy, it was completely within his powers to hand down capital punishments. And a serious enough crime for the death penalty was apparently petty theft. A man by the name of Miquel Guillon was hung for that very crime. And the sources vary, but it seems that at some point he hung a number of French soldiers in a single day, as many as six. Despite his heavy-handedness and the sicknesses and the death and the crippling cold, the colony survives through the winter and it limps into spring. And in June of 1543, Robert Vol decides, I need to travel upstream. It's time to search for the kingdom of Saguenay. I need to do something to make this all worth it. He takes a fair percentage of his colony and he heads upstream towards the Lachine Rapids. And along the way, he loses a boat and eight men die. On top of the rapids, much like Cartier, he looks around and realizes there's no way through here. There's no kingdom this way. There's no signs of any great civilizations to the west. Suganay was believed to be less than a month's travel away from his settlement. And he came to realize it didn't exist at all. Returning back to his settlement, which he renamed France Roy, he was completely deflated. And then a ship appeared on the horizon, coming from downstream. It was a French ship, and it carried news of Cartier. Jacques Cartier and his colonists made it safely back to France, having survived the transatlantic voyage. With their ships laden, weighed down with gold and diamonds, they were victorious in their return. But the gold turned out to be pyrites. Iron pyrite, fool's gold. And the diamonds, in quotes, were just quartz. By midsummer 1543, Robert Vall packed it in. The entire endeavor end to end a complete failure. Robert Vall made it back to France by September of 1543, and he immediately sold all of his boats. A clear indication from the Viceroy that New France once again would become a paper empire consisting only of seasonal French and Basque fishermen who had no knowledge or respect for any titles of nobility while they were off in a land they considered foreign, profitable, and remote. Robert Vol never fully paid off the debts he incurred during his exile, and some of that debt was even handed down to his heirs. He was assassinated in 1560 as France became more and more hostile to the Huguenot presence. He was killed during a Protestant service by a mob of Catholics. He was buried, and then the Catholics undug his body and let the children pick it apart. But let's turn to Cartier now, a man who was more competent than Robertville, more experienced, and he was probably a better person. You know, the times being equal, uh, religion cast aside, just as a person, he was probably a more moral being. Let's look at his shortcomings first. Cartier wasn't a colonizer, he wasn't terribly diplomatic, and some of his plans for creating settlements were short-sighted. But you, you have to remember, we're decades before successful European colonization in North America. And many of the sins that Cartier commits in his planning, uh, people far later also commit. The lack of farmers, for instance. Very common. So he, he belongs to a large group of people who forget to bring farmers when they're colonizing. The gold and the diamonds will find that settlers at Jamestown make the same mistake. I think, and I think this is my theory alone, 
that Peter Minui, or Peter Minuet, who was hired by the Dutch West India Company to uh, help settle New Netherland, was hired specifically because he was a diamond cutter. Because colonists were making this mistake a lot. And so I think Cartier, you know, he he thought gold, he thought fool's gold was gold. Well, there's a reason it's called fool's gold. It looks a lot like gold. And so much of the criticism of Cartier is hindsight. And now let's get on to the issue of his relations with Native Americans. On the positive side, we can say that Cartier, and this will be true for the French in general, are generally respected, respectful of Natives. They consider them humans, which is more than what we could say for certain other colonizers at certain other times. They are spiritually equal, in a sense, although the French always follow them, uh, found them culturally devoid. He didn't start any holy wars with them. He didn't slaughter them. And uh, Cartier uh, didn't kill a single native, as far as we know, which puts him in much better standing than many of the Iberian explorers. However, he and many of the French had no recognition for the Native Americans having any, or First Nations people, having any ownership of the land that they occupied. The French thought they could just show up, make settlements, wouldn't have to make any land purchases, wouldn't have to talk to anyone. They could just do it based on the fact that they were Catholic, these people were, weren't even Christian, and they weren't living in lifestyles that the Europeans would have recognized as settled. And so Cartier is guilty of this one sin, but of course, all Frenchmen were. And so Cartier suffered from being the first, essentially. He was the first French settler, and so had no experience to build upon. But at the end of the day, he was a good man. Not, maybe not great, maybe not a saint, but on a sliding scale, on the teeter-totter of good and bad, I would say he was good. And after his expeditions, Cartier lived a good life. He became part of the bourgeoisie class, or the bourgeois class, or as the English will say 150 years from now, the burgesses. The bourgeoisie are wealthy enough that they don't have to work with their hands. They own large estates, they own shipyards, they own ships, they own operations and businesses. They handle business, but they don't actually have to get down and do the dirty work themselves. And yet they are not part of the nobility. They have no titles whatsoever. And so they exist as a upper middle class, if there's any parallel at all with our current class system. So he lived a nice, quiet life in San Malo. He was comfortable. He went to church a lot because he keeps showing up in the Catholic records. He was the godfather to dozens of kids. Cartier did have to undergo a tribunal to determine whether or not he disobeyed Roberville and what punishment he would face if he was found guilty. And he was found innocent. So he was able to cut ties with the entire operation, be his own man. Now let's assess Cartier as a sailor. Samuel Elliott Morrison, the great historian, brings up that Cartier went into 50 undiscovered harbors. He was mapping them for the first time. All the underground sandbars and shoals and rocks. You did, you, there was no maps of what was there. He didn't lose a single ship in three voyages, over 50 harbors. All those men, he kept them all alive. The only deaths he had were from scurvy and the natives. But his sailing abilities were legit. If you remember back to our first mention of Francis I several episodes ago, we mentioned that part of the emerging claim for any territory in the world was first... Discovery, that gave you a like a little little credit, right? You say, well, you know, our sailors were here first, so this is our land. The next level of that is actually settling people. That gives you a little more credit on the European diplomatic stage. Well, Cartier laid that first claim. He put down not only I discovered these unforeseen lands, but I also had people living there for a while. And so that's level two right there. And he did that for France. And as we learned through his error, 
he ended up coining the term Canada, which obviously is still in use today. And a more immediate consequence to Cartier's expeditions will be that the community of San Malo, his immediate family and his in-laws, and then the extended fishing and merchant class of St. Malo and all of Brittany will be introduced to the far St. Lawrence. And we'll find all the way up to the era of Champlain that merchants from this area have a particular interest in that area. And that'll be basically the future of New France for the next 80 or so years, where you don't have any sort of uh, royal oversight. You don't have any official colonies. You just have merchants from France wandering the area. And a lot of them were attached to this St. Malo trading network, the one that was in large part established by Cartier. In fact, 40 years from now, his nephews will still be climbing over the ruins of Charlesburg Royal, the site of which they would use as evidence that the Cartier family should have a monopoly over trade in the area. So Cartier's influence is far lasting. Those ruins, by the way, were again discovered in 2005 after being lost for a couple hundred years by archaeologists. But the legacy of Jacques Cartier is not in the ruins. It's in all the history that comes afterwards. And for that, you have to listen to the upcoming episodes of this podcast. Now, in the next episode, we're going to jump over to French Florida and the plight of the Huguenots and the zealot Spanish who desperately want to get rid of them. So it's, it's going to be, there will be blood. So I don't want to ruin anything. Please tune in next time. This has been the Other States of America History Podcast. I'm Eric Giannis. Thank you for listening.